So good, so good. Well, my friends, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 19 and move a little bit now in the text. This morning, of course, we dealt with the very nature of our God. We discussed the idea that God, by his very nature, is indeed truth. He has revealed himself in truth. He has uh, disclosed the character of God is in truth. He is incarnated in Jesus in grace and in truth. And he has given us now a Bible. And as you just heard, a very, very unique book. And what I'd like to do, if we can tonight, is talk about the truth of the Bible. Some of you are coming uh, to the text maybe uh, for the first time. Maybe you've never really read the Bible. You're asking a lot of great questions, like how could it be true? And, and over all these years, has it not changed? As Megan said, like the telephone game, where it started with one thing and ended at another. We're going to talk about a lot of that, but I just want to sort of set it up by talking a little bit about verses 19 and following, and a character we're introduced now who's actually, uh, he's called John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist, not to be confused with John the author, two different dudes, but uh, this guy's an interesting character. He's a cousin of Jesus, and as Jesus begins his ministry, John He's kind of crazy a little bit. He's kind of out in the wilderness eating bugs and honey and just preaching about repentance. Like, he's kind of that guy, you know, with the sandwich board sign out there just like yelling at people. Uh, and he was calling people to repent. And you're going to notice that uh, there was a curiosity that the people, the religious leaders specifically of the day, had about this man. They're trying to figure out who he is, what category to put in. Is he just nuts? Or might he be something more? And what you begin to see as we look at verses 19 and following is it's almost like they know something we don't know. Like they're curious about something. We're not even asking the question yet. These religious leaders wanted to know if he fit a very specific puzzle piece in their prophetic history from the word of God. And if he did, then they knew something else was coming. Let's start verse 19. It says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, uh, but confessed, I, I am not the Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. It's a term used of the expected one in all of your Old Testament, which, by the way, all the way from Genesis 3 until Jesus came, they were waiting for someone called the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the Savior. He says, are you the Christ? He says, I am not. And said, well, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Now, Elijah was a prophet in your Old Testament. Elijah got taken up to be with God. Pretty fascinating story. You can check it out on your own. And so they're saying, well, are you him? Since he got taken to be with God, uh, are you him? And he says, I am not. And then they say, are you the prophet? Do you notice? The prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18 speaks of a prophet who will come, specifically the prophet who will come, and uh, will deliver the world. And so are you the prophet? And he answered, no, I'm not. And so then uh, they said to him, well, then who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? And what do you say about yourself? And in verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. How many of your Bibles, by the way, have that in all caps? Any of you have that all caps in your Bible? A couple of you? Um, you might notice a footnote there. It, it means it's a quote from your Old Testament. He is quoting the Bible that they were very familiar with, the Hebrew text. And in some ways, he's beginning to show them that he is the puzzle piece that they've been looking for, but he didn't fit their expectation, and truthfully, neither did Jesus. 
And so he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. It's a quote from the book of Isaiah to make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And they had been sent, we see here, uh, from the group called the Pharisees. Who were they? Well, the Pharisees were kind of the religious elite of the day, uh, very committed to the Old Testament, very committed to adherence to the law. They felt like you showed your passion for God by doing what the Bible said. So they were like it, almost like old school legalists, if you will, of the Jewish faith. Now, what was the Old Testament expectation? Well, if you read through the Old Testament, if, if any of you are like into good literature, the Old Testament's a little bit frustrating in some regard because it has no resolution. There, there's no like, oh, and... and and the, um, the, um, the villain is vanquished and good conquers. It just kind of ends. In fact, awkwardly sort of ends. And in fact, what we find is all throughout the Old Testament, there, there's this golden thread, right? From Genesis chapter 3, where Eve decides on her own to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin comes into the world. Um, in verse 21 of chapter 3, what you find is God sacrifices an animal and covers them with animal skin. And that begins a pattern all throughout your Old Testament that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, which is disgusting, but, but that was sort of the penalty of sin. The wages of sin was, is, and always will be, somebody said it, death. So the golden thread is this sense of like God providing something to deal with the issue of sin. And what you find as you read through uh, all the way through your Old Testament is you get to like Exodus, for example. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. Moses is given the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. He comes down. He relays the Ten Commandments to the people who had no concept for who God was. Nothing had been written at that point. And Moses come down, comes down and goes, well, let me tell you about our God. You, you, shouldn't, make, uh, you shouldn't have any other gods before him. Don't, don't make idols. Um, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't, 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 don't. Ten commandments, but truthfully, there's about 613, give or take none, uh, commandments in your Old Testament that those people were called now to follow. Now, humankind um, was never meant to approach God based on obedience to that. Uh, we tend to read the Ten Commandments like, well, that's right, that's what good people do. So if you want to have a relationship with God, be a good person. That, that's really not how you approach God because you're going to find a principle true in your life and that's true in mine as well, that you'll find out that nothing good dwells in you that is in your flesh, for the willing is present in you, but oftentimes the doing of the good is not. How many of you have found that to be true in your life? Four of you, the rest of you are liars. Okay, here's the thing. There, there is a problem that we have when it comes to like doing what's right. When we read the Bible, it's really not meant to be a self-help book. The Bible's meant to reveal the depth of our sin. Paul said in Romans 7, that he would not have known coveting had the Bible not said you shouldn't covet. And so it, it reveals sin. It's not a pat on the back, you're doing great. It's a mirror that says you're a hot mess and you're in need of something that you do not possess on your own. And you cannot approach God based on your good works, your good deeds, going seven for 10 out of the 10 commandments. You cannot approach God, this is a mirror by the way, you cannot approach God on your own. You need something else. But the Old Testament never answers the question of what else? Because right after the book of Exodus is the book of Leviticus. Most people, by the way, they're all fired up to read through the Bible. They handle Genesis, no problem. They saw the movie, Prince of Egypt, so no problem in Exodus. And then they get to Leviticus. And you're like, okay, 
Um, there's grain offerings and sin offerings and peace offerings. There's wave offerings. There's goodwill offerings. There's um, guilt offerings. There's burnt offerings. Like, dude, it's like a freaking barbecue for 10 chapters of your Old Testament. And I go, yeah, that's the point. Because right after the law of God is given to God's people, here's how you're to live under God. The problem of the human condition is not remedied by that, so you have to offer sacrifice because the wages of sin was, is, and always will be death. Something innocent has to die so that you can have a relationship with God. And so you have this strange book called Leviticus. And, and the idea is that something has to be sacrificed so that we can have a relationship with God. And that pattern continues all the way through your Old Testament until you get to the very end. And all the way through, by the way, it's like, okay, we've got this law, there's the human condition, so we have to offer sacrifices, and we could have priests, but it doesn't help. We could have judges, and it doesn't help. We can have kings, but it doesn't help. We could have prophets, but it doesn't help. None of those deal with the human condition. The human condition can only be dealt with something very, very specific that in your Old Testament had not come yet. So when you read the book of Malachi, which is the last book of your Old Testament, you can turn there if you want to, but here, here's what it says. Here's how the book ends. It says, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. It literally means one kind of in the spirit and power of Elijah, one like Elijah, not necessarily the exact dude. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And it fades to black. I mean, it's like the final scene of the final episode of Stranger Things. You're just like, it's not over. It's just, oh, sorry, did I spoil it for anybody? No, hopefully not. It's not over. Right? There's more. Something is missing. There's no resolution for the human condition all the way through the Old Testament. And so, there's, it's almost frustrating. And by the way, then there's 400 years of silence. I mean, that was like four seconds and it's awkward. 400 years of silence between Malachi and the first book written in your New Testament. And, and then, then we get to the context here. So, John the baptizer is on the scene and he's teaching and he's preaching fire and brimstone. And he's inviting his listeners to embrace not a truth, but the truth. Now, he knew his Bible, and they knew their Bible, which is why they're asking so many questions. Because they know, look, it's been 400 years, bro, and there's no, there's no solution for the human condition. We're waiting for the one who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he, just to use a little concert metaphor, the savior of the world is like the headliner, but this, this one who comes first is like the opening act. And we wanna know, if you're not the main one, if you're not the headliner, the Christ, are you the opening act? Are you the one who's paving the way for the one who is to come? If you are not the Christ, then who are you? Look at verse 25. They said to him, if you're not the Christ, then why are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, and John said, look, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, there's a fairly good chance that Jesus was in the crowd just chilling, just like watching it go down. There's crazy cousin John out there yelling at people, you know. 
And here's John goes, no, 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 there's, there's one among you. One among you. In my Bible, I love it that the, uh, the word one is capitalized. It's him saying there's a deity among you and you don't, even, you don't even know. You don't even see it. And I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, this anticipation was, of course, for Jesus to come or this Messiah of the Old Testament to come and to, uh, to deal with sin. And then in verses 29 and 30, just so you know, John knows what he's talking about. He says something crazy. Let me set it up a little bit, though. When you got to the book of Leviticus and there was the barbecue, 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 offering, 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 that's called biblically atonement. What atonement means is to cover. Like if you wake up, you have a zit, you cover it up with a little something so nobody sees it. It doesn't really deal with the issue. It just covers it. That's all atonement is. So when you sin, offer sacrifice, and it just covers it. It's just kicking the can down the road a little bit. It doesn't deal with a deep-rooted issue. So in 29, though, notice on the next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming, and he says, behold, the what? Lamb of God. Now, the language is specific. Behold, the Lamb of God who covers the sins of the world. Is that what your Bible says? No. Who does what? Takes away. That's huge. Look, we don't, we don't have a Jewish background, so we don't understand the frustration that the entire Old Testament is waiting for something, a solution for the human condition, and never provides it. All we know is a tone, a tone, a tone, cover, cover, cover. And then John has the audacity to say, behold, the Lamb of God who doesn't cover. He takes away the sins of the world. He is the one on behalf of whom I said, after me, the, um, the opening act, comes a man who is higher rank than I. This is John gladly deferring to Jesus. This final statement is fascinating. It says, he existed... Before me. But John's older. So what does that mean? John is like six months older than Jesus, and yet John is saying Jesus existed before him. Because remember, Jesus is preexistent. Jesus is God. Jesus is the agent of creation. This is John going, y'all have no idea who it is that's chilling with us right now, this Jesus, the one who will take away the sins of the world, the one who is preexistent. John's just spilling the beans for us. In fact, drop down just for a second to verse 34. I myself have seen, he says, and testify that this is the Son of God. John had no issue or confusion as to who Jesus was. See, John, who was living as an Old Testament saint for years, came to understand the issue of the human condition that sin has never dealt with, and then sees Jesus, and he goes, that's him. Not only is that him, but I have a role to play. So he's out there, being the opening act, pointing the way for Jesus. What's significant about that is John knew his Bible. The religious leaders knew their Bible. They knew what to look for, and they were looking for it to be fulfilled in reality, these people were not just quoting poetry. These people literally said, if the Bible said that this Messiah would come from this family tree, they're asking the question. How many times have you read through the Bible and you see people going, oh, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? How could Jesus be from Nazareth? Well, the Bible is going to say he's from Bethlehem. He goes to Egypt. He ends up in Nazareth. His ministry is in Capernaum. The Bible's calling the shot. My point is, the Bible now, knowing the Bible, they're looking for the fulfillment physically. 
John and his Jewish audience. And they knew that the Bible was a very unique document. So let's talk about the Bible for just a little bit. So the Bible, as you heard in the spoken word piece, is definitely not an ordinary book. Let me just geek out just for a second on what's called bibliology, which is the study of how we got our Bible. When you're talking about the Bible, it is unique in that you're talking about 66 different books that are combined into one. Not necessarily assembled in our English Bibles chronologically. So sometimes you get a little frustrated, like you're reading this book, and then you're over here, and then you're back there. So it's not meant to be uh, chronologic. 66 books written over a 1,500-year period of time by 40 different authors in three different languages, Hebrew, a little Aramaic, and Greek. The Bible was initially translated from those three languages into the Old Testament, at least into Greek, called the Septuagint, in like the third century BC. The entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, translated in the fourth century into Latin, called the Vulgate. If any of you grew up uh, in a Catholic background, that's the Bible the Catholic Church uses. And then in the 14th century, the English translations began. And let me just ask and answer the question, with all of these translations, I mean, how do you know the Bible is even like the same thing? I mean, that telephone game thing is, is real. You've probably done that maybe in your youth group where something's said and then it's repeated and repeated and repeated. And by the time it's over here, it's not even the same. So how do we know it's accurate? That's a great question. There are two ancient texts that have the highest degree of accuracy. The second is called uh, the Iliad. You may be familiar with that, written by Homer way back in the day. In fact, 8th century BC. There, uh, there are an estimated 300 copies of the Iliad that are around, which gives it about a 95% degree of accuracy. By contrast, the number one accurate book, ancient text, is your Bible. And where the Iliad had 300 known texts, the uh, Bible has 30,000. Uh, it has what uh, most call a 98.5 degree of accuracy. It's literally the most accurate ancient text on the planet. And simply put, your Bible can be trusted. That's not to say that there weren't mistakes that were found and corrected. It's not to say that uh, they have this text and this text and this text and they compare them and they're a little different so they fix it to make sure they're the same. But it is to say that the Bible that you have in your hands is as accurate a text as you can find in the ancient world. One of the most frustrating things I had going through grad school is studying the Greek language, taking... Uh, pulling up a Greek Bible, studying the Bible in Greek, translating the Bible. And I was so frustrated because I'd spend a ton of time because I'm not the sharpest dude around. I'd spend a ton of time trying to study that. I'd read my English text, and that's exactly what it said. So by and large, you can know that the Bible that you have can be trusted. Well, what else makes the Bible unique? We talked a little bit this morning about inspiration. The Bible claims to be inspired by God, literally God-breathed, which is why, by the way, when you read it, it doesn't feel like you're reading any other book. Have you noticed that? It feels a little different, not just because guys are named names that you would never name your kids, but the fact that there's something about it that it almost feels as you're reading it different, sacred almost. Uh, it claims, of course, to, uh, to uh, have co-authorship where the human authors were uh, filled by the Holy Spirit and they spoke for God, let me ask and answer this question. How did we get our Bible? Well, your Bible's got really two parts to it, your Old Testament and your New Testament. Your Old Testament, or what they call the Hebrew text, that's the Jewish Bible, basically. So, so that was solidified before Jesus was ever on the scene. 
So you're talking about 39 books of what's called the canon of Scripture. The word canon, by the way, comes from a word that means the rule of law used to determine uh, if a book is measured up to the standard. So when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about what books made the cut. So you had 39 books in your Old Testament that made the cut long before Jesus was ever around. And it's worth noting, by the way, that your New Testament is going to quote your Old Testament over 300 times. So there's a trend, by the way, that's happening right now. I heard about it uh, here a couple months ago where people are teaching the Bible in the Old Testament. They go, yeah, but you can't take it literally. Like it's, it's not literal, your Old Testament. I go, okay, time out. You have a problem then because it's quoted 300 times in your New Testament. And by the way, Jesus quoted Genesis 2.24 that said, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. Two should become one flesh. So if it's not literal there, then it's not literal here. You just made Jesus a liar. So our Bible by and large, says what it means and means what it says. Now, there's figurative language, but by and large, you can interpret it literally. And what we find in the Bible is there's internal support like that um, that affirm the truth of the Bible. Interestingly enough, there are like 300 prophecies in your Old Testament about that anointed one, the Savior, the Messiah, that will come. Jesus fulfills all 300. The mathematic, mathematical probability of eight of those 300 being fulfilled by one man in random, like this one dude happened to fulfill eight, is the same chance of filling the entire state of Texas a foot high with quarters. I paint one red, hide it, blindfold you, fly you around in a helicopter till you're ready, and you reach down and happen to pick the one. That's eight. It's literally mathematically absurd. The point is, Jesus being Jesus fulfilling, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is one of the most incredible affirmations of the veracity of our Bible because he fulfilled everything perfectly. Um, not only that, you read a book like Daniel. Daniel's going to talk in chapter two about a statue, chapter seven about a vision of beasts. And, and he's laying out the flow of human history before these empires even existed. Talk about Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And sure enough, you walk through the flow of history, and it's perfect. Not only that, in Daniel 9, sorry, I'm geeking just for a second. In Daniel 9, he says, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, it's going to be X amount of uh, days, 173,880 days. Well, we know when the decree is signed, it's in Nehemiah. Well, sure enough, if you count out 173,880 days, it says, until the Messiah, the king, shows himself, that's the day of the triumphal entry when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. You literally cannot make this stuff up because the Bible is not an ordinary book. Well, let's talk about the New Testament. The New Testament, by the way, began as oral tradition. The three gospels, synoptic gospels, were accepted almost immediately. Paul's writings, um, almost all of them accepted very quickly as well. Peter, by the way, in 2 Peter chapter 3, will refer to Paul's writings and the rest of the, as the rest of the scriptures. Look, by the end of the second century, we've got 21 books of the New Testament that were accepted. Here was the criteria for accepting a book. It had to be an apostolic authority, meaning somebody who saw it or interviewed someone who saw it. It had to, be the, it had to have the witness of the Holy Spirit, meaning it exalted Christ. It was sound theologically it was affirmed by the body, and then finally, it was widely accepted. One of the things you need to know 
is that the New Testament, this is a quote from a scholar, the New Testament did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because they were already regarded as divinely inspired and recognized their innate worth and general apostolic authority, direct or indirect. Point being, the Bible we have uh, is an authoritative book. By the close of the fourth century, after four councils, an edict from the emperor Constantine to preserve sound doctrine in the face of heresy, he solidified 27 books of your New Testament. 39 in the old, 27 in the new, and that is how we got our Bible. Back now to John. What that means then is if the Bible is um, inspired, if the Bible is accurate, um, then the Bible is also authoritative. Here's the problem with the Word of God. It's not, is it true? It is true. And, and some would say, well, I, I don't believe that. Well, you can believe gra- gravity is not a thing either. But that doesn't make it any less true. It is 100% true uh, and therefore is authoritative. And there, therein lies is the problem. Uh, the problem is, as I mentioned here this morning, we like to be in control. And yet, if the Bible is in control, we submit to it. Listen to the words of Jesus from later on in John. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he or she is the one who loves me. John 14, 23. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. The problem is not, is our Bible true? The reason we like saying our Bible's not true is so that we don't have to do what it says. See, the reason we like to sort of strip away the authority of the word is so we can sort of brush it aside. But the Bible is inspired, it is authoritative, and therefore we are called to submit to it. Which makes the Bible finally true and powerful. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Just an interesting side note. Uh, in the Great Commission, which is a passage a lot of people are familiar with, right? Jesus says, go therefore into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. Followers of Jesus are called to be people of the book. We're called to be those who take the word of God because of its authority and then do what it says. Look back now at the text, though, at verses 35 and following. If the word of God is authoritative, then what it's going to do is call you into a relationship with God called following Jesus. I'm not a fan of language that says, oh, I became a Christian or, or I invited Jesus into my heart. I'm just not sure there's biblical connotation to that. When you see Jesus now on the scene in this text, as in others, the truth of God, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the word of God being proclaimed, it beckons us to follow that we would pursue him. Look at verse 39. He's talking about Andrew, Peter's brother, and he says, come and you will see. In verse 41, Peter is gonna begin to follow. Verse 43, Philip begins to follow. Verse 45, Nathaniel begins to follow. That's what the truth of scripture does. And our, our prayer for you is that as we lay out now, night after night, the truth of the scripture, that your heart is stirred and you go, man, if this is true, then I need to follow Jesus because he's worthy to be followed. Remember John in John 5 is going to tell us that if you search the scripture, the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll find eternal life, but it's them that speak of me. Our desire is not that you would idolize your Bible. 
Our desire is that you would realize that what the Bible is pointing you to is the one that's worthy to be idolized. That's Jesus or Christ. The author of Hebrews put it this way in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. I'd like to close just by reading a psalm. It's Psalm 1, and we'll be done here for tonight. Psalm 1 is one of my favorite passages as it relates to the power of the word of God. And it simply says this, and the the psalm is speaking of the blessed man or blessed woman. It says, how blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law they meditate day and night. They will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever they do, they will prosper. My friends, God has given us by his grace a book, a very special book, a love letter really, written from the heart of our God, who is truth to us, that we would be like those, the wise uh, man or woman in the Psalms, that we would delight in the word of God, that we would seek it, that we would study it, that we would memorize it, that we would discuss it, that we would read it and put it to heart. And in so doing, we might come to understand the heart of our God who's revealed himself in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for your word. What a privilege that we're not teaching fiction. We're not teaching fable, but the very inspired word of God. So, Lord, as we wrestle with the text, as our friends who are new to the Bible are asking good, hard questions, I just pray that they would feel freedom to ask whatever they want to ask. And, Lord, that we would just point people back to the scriptures as your authority, your written word, your revelatory grace given for us, that we don't have to grope in the darkness to find our God, but we find him in chapter and verse. And so, God, we bless you and we thank you for a Bible that is authoritative in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.